Amen. Would you welcome Brother Springer? Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Lord's so good. And I find myself in, in deep waters tonight. <laughs> but we'll get through it one way or the other. I'll go ahead and read a verse real quick, and then you can be seated. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Revelation 2, 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Unto the angel of the church write, Lord, we praise you, we worship you, ask your help. Jesus, we humble ourselves before you tonight. We give you thanks. We give you praise for all you're doing, Jesus. I pray a word, Jesus, a word from you, Lord. Bless it, God, in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Amen. My title tonight, Pastor, I magnify your office. Pastor, I magnify your office. As always, it's an humbling experience to preach to your peers, and even more terrifying to preach to your elders. <laughs> I honor all of you, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to speak to our district that we all love. I want to inject somehow, some way, Lord, help us tonight, a concept into our, into our thinking. My goal is to, to elevate us, to bless us, to give us something. Perhaps many of you have realized the the point I'm going to make tonight, but it's something that I hadn't seen, and, and I wasn't studying it, I wasn't looking at it, all of a sudden, I, it's like I got a text from the Lord, just a little, a little brush of the Spirit of the God, and bing, it's like, oh, I never realized that before, I had to go look it up, and so that's what I'm bringing for you, and if these waters are too deep for me to tread, I blame the Lord. <laughs> Give me a little time to define some things and set some context and and then I'll do my best to make a point. In the text I read, the salutation, it read unto the angel of the church, right? And that word angel has a dual use that can be directly and simply observed in, in Scripture. The use of the word angel can refer directly to angelic beings delivering a word from the Lord. Or it can refer to human messengers in general. Or human messengers also delivering a word from the Lord. The word angel in the Old Testament, the first time it's used in Genesis 16 7, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar and Ishmael as they fled from Sarah's abusiveness, and the angel appeared to them and told them to go back. In this case, the angel obviously was an angelic being delivering a message. The very same word, Malach, is used in Genesis chapter 32, verse 3, when Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. It's the same word angel, and it's used in, in dual purpose, in direct reference to the angel of the Lord and in reference to a, a human messenger. We see the same dual use in the New Testament. The first time it appears in the New Testament is, is when Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, is it's his turn to go and burn incense at the altar, and the angel of the Lord appeared at the right side of the altar told him he was going to have a son and, and to name him John. Angel here, again, is obviously in reference to an angelic being 
tasked with delivering a message from the Lord. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, well, I'll start at 7, Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, Jesus used this same word, angelo, or angel, to refer to John the Baptist, and it's translated as messenger. It says, as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitude concerning John, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? And I kind of like the description of, of, of John the Baptist, how Jesus described a preacher. He said, what did you come out to see? A reed shaken in the wind? What did you come out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? A preacher? Yes, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger, Angelo, angel, before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So we have biblical precedent in Old Testament and New Testament of the word angel being referring both to spiritual beings who deliver a word from the Lord and human ministers that deliver what? Thus saith the Lord. Revelation chapter 1 verse 11, Jesus speaking, saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, John, you write in a book and you send it unto seven churches, which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, and so on. So John's going to write a book. And he's going to send that book, and here's the address of the book. The church in Ephesus, church in Smyrna, Pergamos, and so on. And within this book, Jesus also wrote seven letters, or had John write seven letters. In these letters, we call them commonly the letters to the churches. But they are not letters to the churches. Look closely at who the letter is addressed to. Revelation 2.1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Revelation 2.8, under the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Revelation 2.12, under the angel of the church in Pergamos, write. These saith, he that has the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. It does not read to the church, right? The letters are, are directly addressed to the angel or the messenger of God's word to the church at Ephesus, Smyrna. Pergamus and so on. So what that leaves one more question to the angel. So is are these letters figuratively addressed to spiritual beings that, that minister to those churches? Because we know that is certainly something that happens. An angel as a ministering spirit. Or are these letters written directly to the pastors of each church? Angel as in a human messenger speaking what thus saith the Lord. Well, let's not speculate about it. We can without doubt and without question identify who Jesus is talking to by the content of the letter. Would you say these things to an angelic being? Or would these likely be addressed to an earthly pastor? Revelation 3.15, let's examine this. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot, so then because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because thou sayest I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. No, because of the context, angel here is not referring to a spiritual being. Not referring to an angelic messenger. But this word angel is used and defined in a more general context as someone who delivers the word of God. That earthly messenger... The pastor 
of the church of Laodicea. Not letters to churches. Letters written to pastors. Pastor, I magnify your office. Jesus wrote, I counsel you in verse 18. Pastor, buy of me gold tried in the fire. Pastor, that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Pastor, anoint your eyes with eyes salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Repent, pastor. Repent. Jesus wrote these letters to these pastors, reminding them of some things. Letting them know that Jesus is serious about this church business. Jesus is serious about this office called pastor. He's letting them know, I see where you are and I see what you're doing and no difficulty is lost to my attention that, Pastor, you're not struggling alone without notice from above. Also letting them know that there's so much about a properly functioning church that rests directly on the personal, spiritual condition of the pastor. Pastor, if you're not living right, and we're going to look at it here in a second, your whole church is going to suffer because you're not right. Amen. Pastor, your degree of consecration has direct bearing on what kind of church you are going to have. Your spirituality has direct bearing on what happens or does not happen in your services. So much rests squarely on the shoulders of the pastor. Pastor, I magnify your office. There's a lot about the book of Revelation that's a mystery. But this portion we look at in the beginning is no mystery because in this instance, the symbolism is clearly defined. It displays a beautiful portrait of the Lord, his pastors, and his church, and the relationship between them. Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, John says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice, the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun when it shines in its strength. Skipping down to verse 20. So we have Jesus. And he's holding forth seven stars in his right hand. And he's walking amongst seven golden candlesticks. And it says, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand. And the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Pastor, he's holding you in his right hand. And the seven golden candlesticks which thou saw are the seven churches. We have Jesus standing in the midst of his church holding forth his pastors in his right hand shining with the glory of God. What a glorious and intimate imagery of the relationship between the Lord, his angels, his messengers, those who deliver the word of God and the churches standing in their midst. And notice that there's a complete distinction between the church, the lampstands, and the office of the ministry, the stars in his hands. They are not the same. He does not look at them the same. He does not treat them the same. Pastor, I magnify your office. Our calling, our purpose, our anointing, our position with the Lord is different than those 
who make up the lampstand. He's standing in the midst of the churches, shining as bright as the sun in its strength. A powerful word going forth from his mouth like a sharp two-edged sword holding forth. Pastor, he's holding you forth in his right hand. His eyes a flame of fire, feet shining like brass from a furnace. And he turns to John and he says, right. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, he says unto the, the angel, unto the pastor of the church of Ephesus, right. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. And walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks of the church. He says, Pastor, I know your works. Pastor, I know your labor. Pastor, I know your patience. And how you can't bear them that are evil. And, and you've tried them which say they are apostles and they're not. And you found them to be liars. Oh, can anybody relate to what Jesus is saying to this pastor? And you, you have borne, you've stood up under the pressure and under the weight of your office. And you've had patience. And for my name's sake, you have labored and you've not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, Pastor, because thou hast left thy first love. Jesus described what the pastor of Ephesus was going through. It was labor and it was conflict and it was opposition. And you get worn down and you get battle weary. And Jesus had to write these letters. And six of the seven pastors that he wrote to, he said, repent. And we are no better. We are no better than our forefathers who were preaching this very same message. We labor and we get worn down and we get battle weary. And after we've been fighting in the trenches and on the front lines for a little while, you get a little punchy and a little snappy and a little jaded. And I used to wonder why pastors always walked around with that stern look on their face. <laughs> because they're carrying the weight of a church. On their shoulders, Pastor, I magnify your office. It's easy, so easy to get in a, in a place that, that these pastors were in. When you read about it, Jesus is saying, I know what you're doing. I know how you've endured. And I know how you've, you, there's, you've faced opposition. And, and I know how you've, you've stood against false doctrines. And you counsel people and before they get halfway through a sentence, you already know what they're going to say and you already know what the problem is and what they need to do. And you're answering before they even finish speaking and it normally has to do with something in their life that isn't right. And if they would just listen to you and repent, the, then, then that problem would most likely resolve itself, but they don't see the connection and they're not going to listen to you anyway. And you know you're just wasting your breath, but it's your pastoral duty, so you tell them anyway with little hope that they're actually going to listen. And a visitor comes to service and just by their demeanor and how they're dressed and how they carry themselves in the spirit, when they shake their hand and the, the words that come out of their mouth, you discern already with practice accuracy of how things are likely going to turn out. There was one man coming to the church I instantly knew. He was never going to be in submission to my ministry. He was, I was never going to be his pastor. And after a few services, he said, I don't know how it is that you have such a powerful church with all this false doctrine you're preaching. I don't know why I keep coming, but I just do. And a couple services later, he wants to have a Bible study to save me from the error of my ways. But if he could just help me out, then... Maybe I'd be all right. And I let him try. And we went through the motions and the expected result, regardless of what the Bible says. Well, that's just not what the rest of Christianity says. That's not what I believe. And, and, and so I'm leaving. 
And I knew it months before that that was going to be the outcome. And, and sometimes we think, is this all pastoring is? Is this why we fell in love with the idea of ministry? Dealing with the minutia of fretting over money, paying the bills, building maintenance, trying to keep people happy, involved, and connected. The phone starts buzzing around 8 a.m. and doesn't stop till noon. <laughs> right in the middle of a text when somebody calls while you're trying to respond to an email. Pastor, is that your first love? Is that why you fell in love with ministry? Is that why you wanted to preach the word? Is that why you were thrilled when the Lord began to deal with you about preaching? No, it wasn't those things. Your first love was the wonder of anointed preaching. Your first love was how the ministry blessed your soul when you stepped foot into the church house for the first time. Your first love is the awe of how the power of the Holy Ghost was present. The miracle of how lives are impacted and changed and how an empty life is filled and how a broken heart and a broken life are put together again because that's what Jesus did for you. Do you remember the first time the pastor put his hands on you and prayed for you? I do. Because when he did, when that man of God prayed for me, I felt something I'd never felt before. I left that service changed just enough to come back the next time. And I hadn't stopped yet, praise God, and not going to. Hallelujah. Do you remember the first time that you saw a sinner praying in the altar after you got cleaned up and full of the Holy Ghost with tears streaming down their face? And I remember being so excited because I knew what the Lord had done for me, He was going to do for them. Our first love. We still rejoice over the thrilling miracle of anointed preaching, the, the manifestation of the presence of God in our, our services, the glory of God on display through human ministry, the Spirit of God on His appointed vessel, working in the hearts and lives of the hearers. These things are why we fell in love with Jesus, why we fell in love with the ministry that Jesus was standing in the midst of the church and He was holding forth. A pastor in his right hand, and we were being blessed, and we were being ministered to, and your first love, and the very idea that one day, pastor, that you would be called to step into that office was too grand an idea, too lofty a thought. But look what the Lord has done. We are not the people we were when we first encountered the wonder of the love of God. When we were in awe of the power of God on display in that, that man called Pastor. Your first love. He wrote to the pastor of Ephesus, Pastor, you've left your first love. Nevertheless, therefore, verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. Go back to the first works. Go back to that awe. Go back to that wonder. And this next statement is startling as it shows the direct relationship between the spiritual state of the pastor and the position of the church he pastors. 
Repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick. Pastor, I'll move your church out of its place, except thou repent. Pastor, I magnify your office. Look how Jesus sees this relationship. Lord, help us. He said, I'll remove your church. Pastor, I know the church belongs to Jesus, but pastor, you're an overseer. It's your church as far as Jesus is concerned. We're in his hand, but you're responsible for it. It's a duty. It's an honor. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. It's a calling. You're the caretaker. I'll remove your church out of its place. There was no distinction in Jesus' mind between the state of the pastor and what was going to happen to the church that he was over. Pastor, I magnify your office. I'm going to come to you quickly, and I'll take your church out of his place, except I'll repent. Look at the responsibility that rests on our shoulders. What is the implication of a church moved out of its place? Well, if we stick to the context of the passage in Revelation 2.1, Jesus said, I walk in the midst of the church. And if the church is removed from that place, then it's removed from where Jesus is walking. Pastor, I exalt your importance. How you live matters. What you do matter. Whether you pray or not, your prayers are the most important prayers in the whole church. Whether you spend God time with God or not is more important than where if anybody else does, we better. Pastor, if anybody's praying, you better be praying. If anybody's living right, you better be living right. <laughs> the potential of your church to be blessed or not blessed, rest on you. If there's sin in the congregation, then the Lord says, Pastor, here's a message. This is how you deal with it. This is what you do. Jesus has an answer for a problem within the congregation. But if there's sin or carnality in the office of the pastor, the potential is the whole church is moved out of its place. I remember my seven years in Homer with the small congregation there, about 15 or so for most of those seven years and It was easy to see the result of my condition and the effect it had on the church. If I kept myself consecrated and sanctified unto the Lord and didn't allow myself distractions, if I spent regular time in prayer and and consumed a steady diet of the word and was reaching for the Lord and pressing and all of that, then it was much more likely on service days that I brought Jesus to the pulpit with me. We experienced anointing and direction and a sure word. If I was where I needed to be, if I brought Jesus to the pulpit, then we were going to have church. The people were blessed, even inspired. Because even though we were humble, an anointed service with anointed preaching is inspiring and it's encouraging and it's motivating and it's effective and the people I could see, the, the few that, that were there, they left service with a smile on their face and peace in their heart. And you could see their faces were glowing because we'd spent time with Jesus. The touch of the Holy Ghost on their lives. We may not have been having revival numerically, but we felt the revival spirit in the church. We felt like the Lord showed up and moved in our midst. Also remember, if I had a rough week, if I was distracted, if I wasn't where I was supposed to be, then I I struggled in the pulpit and 
The people struggled with service and worship was hard and I was uninspired and they were uninspired. Service was dry and it seemed like he was, Jesus was a million miles away. In that small congregation, it was easy to tell what role my condition played and what transpired in the church. If I didn't bring it, we weren't going to have it. I don't know exactly what the pastor of Ephesus was doing. Mostly he seemed to be doing pretty good. I don't think Jesus was giving empty warnings. What does it take for the Lord to go through with moving a church out of its place? A failure in the pastor to respond to to a call, a dog of persistence and a lifestyle that's not pleasing to the Lord. I don't know. But I do know this. That the Lord was making sure that the pastor of Ephesus understood what was at stake. And the importance that Jesus placed on his position as pastor. Jesus no doubt wants to walk in the midst of our church. But the deciding factor, it seems, rests on the shoulders of the pastor. We can't live a certain way in our personal life and then, and then step outside of that and, and all of a sudden just kind of put on a mantle of ministry and step behind the pulpit and, and leave personal life behind. It doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't look at us that way. Whatever our life is, we bring it to the pulpit with us. If there's an attitude, well, I'm the pastor and the, the Lord's more lenient with me. and That's a mistake in judgment. It seems just the opposite is true. The potential of your church seems to rest squarely on your shoulders. Pastor, I magnify your office. Return to your first love. Seek that anointing again. When we were, do you remember preaching your first message? Do you remember stepping behind the pulpit for that first time? Lord, help it. Lord, help me. Lord, anoint it, God. Jesus, use it, God. With a fresh anointed word, the people are going to be moved. Don't blame them for not backing you and not getting with the program. If you haven't spent any time in prayer and you're preaching messages from two years ago, don't blame them if they're uninspired. If you downloaded your sermon off the internet, don't blame them if you don't have a word from God. Because I guarantee you, Pastor, if you'll get with the program, your church will be with the program. The Apostle Paul, he taught about the gifts of the Spirit, giftings, the power of God on display to bless people. And, and he gave this directive in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. He says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. And he stuck a chapter on love right in the middle of a discourse on the gifts of the Spirit between chapters 12 and 14. Love being the motivation, not grandstanding, not self-aggrandizement, not look at me or any of those things. But he said, covet earnestly the best gifts. Do you want people to be saved? Do you want people to be healed? Do you want people to be delivered in your church by the power of God on display? When is the last time, pastor, that you asked Jesus for greater anointing in your pulpit? 
So there's one thing about the Lord. In him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But from our beginning, we were molded from clay. We are moldable. We are changeable. And sometimes we think just because it's been this way that it always has to be this way, that this is the, the pinnacle of ministry, that we're just going to go Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and what's always happened is what's always going to happen. But it does not have to be so because Paul told Somebody, somebody that will listen to covet earnestly the best gifts. When is the last time you asked Jesus for greater anointing in your pulpit? When is the last time, Lord, use me to bless those people? Do you love your people? Do you love your congregation? Do you want to see them blessed? Do you love the lost people of your city? When's the last time you asked God to deepen my ministry? Do more than you've been doing. Jesus, when's the last time you asked Jesus to use you to touch somebody when you put your hands on them? Pastor, we have people that come to church and they look to you for a touch of God in their life. They, they come up to the front for prayer and we, well, we're the pastor. We've done this for years and we go through the motions. We anoint with oil and say a few words and do our pastorly duty. And for us, it's just something that we do in service. And, but for them, they're bringing their needs and their hurts, looking for some touch of God, for some little bit of help, for some little bit of strength. The husband's been yelling at me again, and, and I'm all hurt on the inside, and I just need a little touch of God tonight. But we just go through the motions because we're the pastor, and we grab the oil, and Lord bless him. When's the last time? I just said, Jesus, use me when I put my hands on people. Use me, God, when I pray for Kids are being pulled on by the world and the mom and dad feel helpless and they need direction and home life has been a little bit of chaotic recently. They just need a little assurance, just, just a little touch of the Holy Ghost, just a little hint that the Lord knows where I am and that we're in his hands and, and we just go through the motion. Lord bless you. Sick in their body. Real needs being presented. Looking to you, Pastor, for the answers to their hurt. And we're just thinking if I can just get through this next service, maybe I'll dig up an old, some old message. And, and we'll just, if I can just get through it, then we can you know, get on with whatever, whatever I'm doing. When's the last time you earnestly coveted the gifts of the Spirit when you said, God? Use me to bless my church. Lord, they need you and they're looking to me, God. Lord, deepen my anointing, God. Help me preach better, Jesus. Love for those people motivating you. Lord, display your power and your glory. Pastor, I magnify your office because the glory of God is not going to be displayed through you, then who? I'm thankful for a good evangelist that comes through, but Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. Pastor, make full proof of your ministry. When's the last time? Yes, the Lord deepen our services. God, more's got to happen. We've got a city to reach. Lord, certainly this wall 
can be broken down. Certainly the, this hindrance of whatever's keeping my church from growing, certainly you can break down this wall. With the last, we get comfortable with the wall just being there and that's how it's going to be. And We hadn't talked to Jesus about it for a couple years now. We just kind of start hanging our coat on it, put, a, put it in a coat rack and just kind of start making it part of the furniture. Jesus, deepen our services. God, deepen, deepen our anointing, deepen what you're doing, Jesus, somehow, Lord. We need more of you, God. The power of God on consistent display. You know, I think that, I think that is the key to numerical revival. The power of God on consistent display. There is no such thing as an off service. We got to get that thinking out of our minds. Every service is an on service. Every service, it's time to reach out for God. Every service, it's time to preach with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all that you have. Every service, it's time to worship with all that we have. Hallelujah. Lord, just make it a, just a regular thing. That when we get together, it's just amazing things are just going to happen from the opening prayer to the moment the music starts, to the preaching, to the altar service, anointed, 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 powerful, inspiring. Because we've been reaching out to Jesus and we've been living right and we've been keeping ourselves from carnal things. God, Jesus, we've really been the man or the woman of God that he's called us to be. Sometimes when you think about it, we know in our minds what he's calling us to be. Sometimes, and I'm being honest and transparent, that person seems like a distant person. And the Lord reminds us every now and then, renews that vision of what we're supposed to be. If we'll just be what we're supposed to be. Because if we'll grab a hold of Jesus like we never have, that will promote itself because people will start talking. Jesus didn't promote himself. He didn't have an ad campaign. Don't get me wrong. We need the practical. But the practical must be seasoned with the miraculous working of the Holy Ghost. Jesus' ministry promoted itself. In Mark chapter 1, verse 27, it says, And they were all amazed. And so much they questioned among themselves, saying, what thing is this? How long has it been since you had the kind of service where people were going, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? I've never seen a move of God like that before. For with authority he commanded even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread. People started talking about what was going on. Jesus' ministry promoted him. Most people today, we talked about a little bit earlier in a, a little session, I've observed that most people don't really care about doctrinal truth. That's not why they're looking for a church. What they're looking for is a genuine move of God. What they're hungry for is something real. Get hold of Jesus, Pastor, like you never have before. Bring power and anointing to the pulpit. Position yourself to let Jesus touch your life again and to position yourself to let Jesus touch people, touch your church with your ministry. 
And then more often than not, when you've blessed them, they'll be excited to spend time with you and eager to hear what you have to say. But we can get in a rut and a pattern where we're not really inspired anymore and we just go through the motions. Jesus, help us. Just two more passages briefly. I want to return to my first love. I want to reach and nurture an appetite for the wonder of the potential of the miraculous all over again. Because when Jesus shows up, there's just no telling, no telling what can happen. The wonder of of the anointing. The apostles were careful not to get too bogged down with daily business. And we know the the story in Acts chapter 6, beginning of verse 3. I'm thankful to the Lord for a church secretary, even if it's my wife. (laughs) Acts 6, 3, it says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And if we want apostolic ministry, just like the Bible says, then we need to rise to the level, pastors, of apostolic commitment. And take you out seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Can you see it there? And I'm closing. One of the verses that I go back to again and again is Acts chapter 8, verse 8. It says, and there was great joy in that city. It's just a short phrase, but... It expresses all the hope a preacher has for their ministry. And there was great joy in that city. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ unto them. We can do that. I'm with you, Philip, so far. I'm there. We can preach Jesus. Okay, we got that part. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, anointing and power present to heal and to deliver and to change lives. And Philip, you've left me behind to a great extent. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And the reason for the great joy was the power of God on display through a preacher. The key to revival. Pastor, I magnify your office to position ourselves to reach for the miraculous, to reach for the anointing, to reach for, because I don't think those things happen on accident. I think those things are found on purpose. These things must be reached for. Sometimes we forget to reach for the power of God because we're doing the accounting and paying the bills and trying to put out fires and doing building maintenance. And Well, I got a little something I dug up from a message from a couple years ago. That'll be good enough. And, and we'll just get through this service and this is how we live life. And we forget. We forget our first love. To see a life being touched. To see somebody being healed. Somebody being delivered. The possibility. Just the wonder of the possibility of what happens when Jesus shows up. 
our first love. Return to your first love. Do your first works. Covet earnestly the gifts. And there was great joy in that city. Can we stand together? Jesus was in the midst of the church. And he, pastor, he's holding you forth. And he's got you in his hand. He's got you in his hand. He's got you in his hand. Yeah, he knows what we're going through. Yes, he knows our labor. Yes, he knows our struggle. He says we're right in his hand. Hallelujah. And do we think he's going to withhold anointing from us that we need to do the work? Do you think he's going to withhold anything from us? Whatever's necessary. Because he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And Jesus is standing in the midst and he's holding forth his pastors. Ask him for anointing all over again, church. Ask him to renew the wonder of what we're doing all over again. Six of those seven pastors, he said, repent. Repent, nevertheless, I have someone against you. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Let's reach out to him together. Talk to him for a little while.